Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where DVs and Al ruminate on this great and spacious beehive. Today is October 16, 2022, and we're on episode 29. We're here to welcome Rebecca Bibliotheca from the Good Book Club as she joins the podcast. Some news articles is the church IT has been ransacked, data stolen by state-sponsored cyber thieves. President Nelson dedicates the Heber Valley Temple and the latest developments on the AP child sex abuse scandal. You're not going to want to miss it. Now, if you want to connect with us, you can head on over to mormonnewsroundup.org www.mormonnewsroundup.org or send us an email to colob at mormonnewsroundup.org that's k-o-l-o-b so rebecca welcome to the mormon news roundup oh thank you so much i'm excited to be here this morning oh tremendous and, and happy birthday is that right you know, my birthday was yesterday, but I like to keep celebrating all weekend long. So thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. You're not going to tell us how old you are, I assume, right? Uh, you know, I'm ish, whatever. <laughs> it's, uh, let's just say I was um, raised in the 70s and 80s church. So that gives you an idea. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Well, I won't say how old I am either. Um, <laughs> let me ask you a couple of questions here. Let's get to know you. What makes the followers of Joseph Smith Jr. so interesting to you? Oh, that is such a good question. I would have to say the answer to that is that I have been surrounded by the followers of Joseph Smith Jr. my entire life. <laughs> I come from hardy, faithful pioneer stock. Um, so faithful, in fact, that my original founding Mormon ancestor uh, found himself uh, as a, a shooter and clubber in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So you really can't get much more faithful from th than that. Wow. But, I am really glad that we are doing this remotely then because, um, yeah, you know, no, I don't want to. <laughs> no, yeah, it's in my DNA. So watch wow. out. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. You don't have any you don't have any uh, descendants. You don't have any Lafferty stock as well, do you? No, I do not. That okay. I However, <laughs> I certainly look into that for you because I wouldn't be surprised. So, no, my parents were very Orthodox Skousenite Mormons, if you're familiar with what those are. So I grew up with the teachings, you know, that the that the 10 tribes were under the ice and that there are no dinosaurs and, you know, all of those amazing teachings from the 70s and 80s. I was raised in a very Orthodox household, Mormon Orthodox household. Uh, basically ate only food storage, made furniture out of food storage. I know some of you guys know what that's all about. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. You make a, you need a couch, you stack up some, you know, barrels of rice and wheat and you throw a cloth over it, put some pillows on it and you've got a couch. Um, we also didn't have um, TV. So not a lot of knowledge on pop, pop culture or any of those other things that were happening out in the world. We were very sequestered. I wore homemade clothes. Basically, I was that kid. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, so, this is the this is the first time, though, that I've heard uh, Cleon Skousen and the word orthodoxy in the same sentence, though. Yeah, I, I know. It was a strange hybrid mix, but they really were. You had to have lived it to understand this. <laughs> <laughs> now, I understand that you started a, uh, a book club. Uh, it's called the Good Book Club. When did, when did you start that? I did start the Good Book Club. I mean, I was going to say that, that you know, my whole entire life, surrounded by Mormons, worked at BYU, went to BYU, married in the temple, raised my family in the heart of the heart of Utah County, all of that. And then as I sort of gravitated away from Mormonism a couple years ago, my background um, is in library science. That's what my master's is in. And that's the capacity I worked at BYU in. And so um, as I started to get involved with more kind of Mormons, 
post-Mormon social media sites, I started to notice that people were just reading voraciously and avidly, almost almost in a way that they now they know what they don't believe. They want to try to figure out what they do believe, and that's by reading. And somebody as a joke on one of these social media sites said, well, you know, you're a librarian. Why don't you start a post-Mormon book club? And I thought, well, why don't I? Yeah. <laughs> how it started two years ago. So Now, uh, you're on Facebook, right? Yes. Yes. That's kind of the main way we connect. The Good Book Club on Facebook. We're also on Instagram. I've dabbled in TikTok, but again, I'm, as my kids call me, a boomer. I'm not quite a boomer, but <laughs> but you can find us all over the place. Um, and we have members all over the country. It's a virtual uh, reading group for post-Mormons and, and also basically anybody, nuanced Mormons. We have never Mormons. We have all kinds of people. And we just basically read books and discuss once a month in a virtual meeting and have bonus events and, and just have a wonderful time kind of, I don't know, developing new ideologies, maybe a new spirituality, just kind of figuring out where to go from here. So it's been yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like everybody's welcome. Even uh, Kurt and McConkie lawyers. Uh, you know what? I, I wouldn't necessarily say no. Um, we might have to block <laughs> them if they got out of control or slap oh, them with uh, a screening order. But oh, okay, okay. First of all, we have total control. We can just, you know, we like our confirmation bias bubble. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> now, what do you what do you hope to accomplish with the Good Book Club, uh, Rebecca? Well, you know, I, I would just like to kind of, and I think that we've really started to do this, form a community where people who are post-Mormons or nuanced Mormons can just sort of explore and learn new things. When you're a Mormon, you read a lot, but what are you reading? You're reading your scriptures, your lesson manuals, your conference talks, your patriarchal blessings. You're reading those kinds of things, and you're often encouraged maybe subtly not to read other things because you might come across information that you know, conflicts with what you're learning at church. I mean, I was asked to start a book club once in a ward uh, for the Relief Society, but the bishop said, you're only allowed to read biographies of the prophets. <laughs> uh -oh. So I declined politely. But that's what I'm saying. Just just a place where anything goes, a clearinghouse of information and just a community where you can kind of discuss things through the lens of Mormonism. Now, what has been the reaction to your club so far? Well, we've actually had quite a positive reaction. We have people that find us and say, I have been looking for something like this, you know, my entire, since I left. I think that being a post-Mormon and being a reader, it's kind of a niche. It's a certain kind of a person. And like I said, we have people from all over the country. And and a lot of our founding members from two years ago, uh, there was kind of a core 15 that started. Everybody's still part of it. So we meet in person. Some of us that are here in Utah, when we're out of state, we try to connect with members. It's just been a, a amazingly positive reaction. So, wow. Yeah. You said core 15. Uh, as long as you didn't say quorum of the 15, yeah, I was I thought I, that might be triggering. I'm very sorry about that. But no, <laughs> core 15. Okay. Core 15. I'm, I'm with you on that. Now I understand uh, Rebecca that you uh, recently teamed up with uh, Stephen Pinecker of the Mormon book reviews and you have a big launch of the Mormon media review. What is that? And how's that going? Okay. This is what's really funny about the book club is probably month number two or three, I get this message on Reddit and this person says, hey, I'm an evangelical and I'm really interested in Mormonism. Can I join your book club? And I'm like, of course, we're totally inclusive. You can come. And it turned out to be Stephen Pinecker, who just has an incredible knowledge of Mormonism, has been studying it and immersed in it for decades. And he has his wonderful program, Mormon uh, Book Reviews. And he did an interview with me kind of to tell my story. He called me a largely unknown guest, a lug. So I didn't know whether to be offended or complimented, but it was a fun interview to do. And then when Under the Banner of Heaven um, came out, 
he knew that I love media, all things media. And so he invited me on to just kind of talk about that. And then we sort of collaborated and said, you know what, there's a lot of Mormon media coming out lately, just a lot, um, different podcasts, different series, different, you know, films. So we said, why don't we just start Mormon media reviews? So it's sort of an arm of Mormon book reviews. And I'm the sometimes co-host on there. And we talk about all things media. So that's been really fun. Yeah, I did. I, ca I caught a couple episodes of that. In fact, I think I've caught all of your episodes of that. So I'd like to give you a resounding endorsement. You guys make a really powerful and uh, compelling team. So I definitely wish you the very best with those of the Good Book Club and also with the Mormon media reviews going forward. Um, one last question. Is there anything else that you want to tell us about your personal life or religious background before we hop into uh, the Mormon News Roundup for this week? Oh, well, that's kind of like an Oprah question, isn't it? You want to delve into the personal life of your uh, of your guests and co-hosts. That's funny. No, I guess I guess I would mention that, you know, going back to um, why am I interested in the followers of, of Joseph Smith and saying that I'm surrounded, um, I think that there's such a thing called, I call it a Latter-day Sandwich. And that's where a lot of us who are post-Mormons are sandwiched in between, like myself, you know, faithful parents who still attend and would be devastated if they knew, you know, that I was on the other side of Mormonism. And then also faithful children. An hour from now, I'm going to my youngest son's mission farewell. I well, mean, congratulations. Is, yeah, I know. That is how strange and unusual sometimes you find life on the other side of Mormonism. And I think you just you just try to navigate it. So but I appreciate programs like yours, programs like Steve, where, you know, you get a chance to kind of see how other post Mormons or nuanced Mormons are coping and, and just feel community. So I think that's important. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and I wish your son the very, very best when he's in. Uh, I understand that he's going to Arkansas. I lived there for a number of years. It's, it's a wonderful state and uh, very welcoming people, and I, I wish him all the best uh, on his mission. And that does bring us to our Mormon News Roundup Joke of the Week, and you've got it for us, right, Rebecca? I do. I have a couple different jokes of the week. Um, I'll just tell one, though, for the sake of time. Okay. Why do Mormon women stop having children at 35? Because they follow the uh, the prophet? <laughs> no, because 36 is just too dang many. <laughs> oh, so no. Oh. I know. It's oh, so boy. <laughs> that is bad. Bad. Okay. Now, that makes a lot of sense. That uh, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, Very nice. Good. You're going to fit right in here. So let's uh, hop into the uh, news articles for the week. And our first uh, news article for the week was uh, published here by Jessica Lyons Hardcastle on Friday, the 14th of October 22. And it is Mormon Church IT ransacked and data stolen by state-sponsored cyber thieves. So uh, a lot of people got a uh, note from the church, either in an email or in another way, that the uh, church's IT systems had been breached, including some church members' uh, confidential information, such as their contact information. But luckily, no banking history, other financial information. And apparently this was uh, uh, took place about seven months ago and there was a delay in releasing this information to the members um, as, a requ as requested by law enforcement. And apparently the church has notified everyone who's been affected by this. Uh, how do you feel about this, uh, the church getting hacked, uh, Rebecca? Well, I think it's a very interesting scenario. I think the most interesting thing about it is that people who believed they had resigned, people who believed that their information was in no way connected to the Mormon church anymore, received this email. It reminded me of the lyric from Hotel California, right? You can check out, of course, but you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How is it that, hey, I thought I, re I thought I removed my membership. How is it that I'm still getting contacted? 
Yep, that's exactly right. And I think people were very surprised to receive that email. Although I guess um, in defense of the church, you, you could say that is why they kept this information in case there is a data breach or some reason they need to reach out. So I don't know. People are talking yeah. about it, though, that's for sure. Yeah. It was a surprise to especially some people who had resigned a long, long time ago that the church still had their contact information. Um, you know, and people are very, very critical about the church on this. And I do want to come a bit to the church's defense because I believe that it is, uh, uh, I believe there was a law that was passed. I'm not an expert on it, but that if you have someone's personal information and it is hacked, then you're required by law to inform them. So I believe that is why the church kept these individuals' contact information around is so that they would, hey, let them know that, hey, your information may be hacked. You may need to monitor your, uh, you know, your identity with one of those services. Um, I, I don't think that the church did anything wrong in this entire scenario. In fact, I, I, it appears to me that the church did everything right. I mean, it's not they can't really stop from being hacked. I, I'm sure they have IT security that helps. I, I, I don't see that this is something that someone can put a finger in the church's eye over. I, that's how I see it. And the one thing I wonder what will happen now is, you know, maybe this will kind of shine a spotlight on how hard it is to leave, how they keep your information, how they use your information. Um, I think that definitely comes up in this because we know it's difficult to leave. You actually have to take legal steps and get a notarized letter saying right. you want it. Yet they, you know, despite the notarized letter, despite the wishes of the people who are leaving, they're still pretty much able to do whatever it is that they'd like to do. So I'm curious if somebody might decide to sue and say, I had removed my information and then it was compromised. I mean, I don't know. This may possibly shine a spotlight on that. We'll have to see. I wouldn't be surprised. Now, I do believe you didn't notarize statement if you use quit Mormon, but I believe if you go to your bishop that you do not need uh, a notarized statement. I don't know that for a fact, but I believe that that is the case. Now, I know you posted about this on your Facebook, uh, on your Facebook post. What was the reaction there, Rebecca? Well, the thing that caught me, I did not receive a letter. Um, I know, or an email. I know that you did. So you're in that. Yes. Letter, but I did not. <laughs> But of course, I saw a copy of the letter. And the thing that just stood out to me is the very first line. It said, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, comma, a corporation soul. And I thought, well, there it is. They have to put it out right out there. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I kind of made a post. I circled, you know, corporation. And I thought, just in case anyone was wondering, you know, here it is. It really is a corporation. So I don't know how many people got that. Probably not a lot of faithful people, but but when I posted it, people were, were laughing and commenting. So Yeah, I believe that the church was incorporated, I believe, in uh, 1923 by uh, mm -hmm. President Grant. Um, and then it had two corporations. It had the Corporation of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ and also the Corporation of the Presiding Bishopric. But I believe in the la about four years ago that they um, consolidated all of it into one corporation. As far as church holdings is concerned, not the real estate. The real estate uh, portfolio still has a wide number of different uh, corporations for the real estate portfolios. Uh, if you go to the Widow's Might Report, you can learn more about that. But yes, I was hacked. Uh, you know, they sent me an email just shortly before the show. Uh, but let me tell you, Rebecca, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. I'm not going to let that stop me. There you go. You go. You do it. That's right. The stone must continue rolling forward. That's it. Yes. Now, the, sto the stone, uh, the church's stone, you know, is supposed to roll forth and fill the whole earth. But unfortunately, that stone is not gaining ground on the earth's uh, total population because the earth's total population is growing at a rate of uh, just under 2%. But the church growth for the last couple of years is only at about 1.4%. So the stone that is supposed to come down the mountain, unfortunately, there is more mountain. More mountain is being added. And the stone is actually further up as a proportion of coming down the mountain. So I'm not sure if that stone is actually going to get to the bottom. I'm just going to put it that way.
Now, um, uh, we have a poll that goes uh, out every week, uh, Rebecca, for if you come on over to Anchor for our listeners out there, we have a poll that goes along with this. Uh, this is our featured news article. And the poll we call it the Mormon News Roundup Poll of the Week, available only on Anchor. So let me read you this, uh, Rebecca, and let's. Uh, I want to get your response and our listeners so they can also respond. And uh, the question for the week is, how do you feel about the church's IT department being ransacked and data stolen by state-sponsored cyber thieves? Is it number one? Um, let's see. I'll read number one. Lord, help us locate these thieves to see if they found the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Amen. Amen. Hey, you know, <laughs> maybe we can get some good out of this, right? <laughs> well, we've been waiting for that sealed portion for quite a while. It's time. Yeah, yeah I think, I, you know, I think it is time. Um, you know, maybe we, you know, these hackers, they, who knows what they uncovered in all these church vaults, hopefully some juicy stuff. So maybe they have the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. I'd really like to read that. I can tell you that would be good for the good book club, wouldn't it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we would probably devote two or three months to that. That would be incredible. Well, remember, the uh, yeah, the, uh, the the sealed portion, the, the portion that we have now is only the one third and the sealed portion is two thirds. So I think the uh, Book of Mormon itself is a little over a quarter million words. So the total Book of Mormon uh, contents then would be right around a million words. That's that would take a long time to get through. That's absolutely incredible. However, if you parse out the and it came to passes, I think probably it's almost more like a comic book. I think it would be. <laughs> yeah, that's what Mark Twain says. If you remove the it came to passes, it would just be a pamphlet. <laughs> yeah, that's the old joke. <laughs> or is it uh, number two? Ooh, number two. I sure hope that they didn't get away with the new temples being announced at next general conference. Hashtag spoiler. Yeah. Well, if they if they announce. Yeah. What if they announce those ahead of time? That could be a problem. Yeah, that would be an issue because I do believe that every October and every April there are odds in Vegas as far as where the next temple is going to be announced. So this would definitely wow. be a problem. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, if they if they leaked all the temples ahead of time, would anybody actually? I bet General Conference at uh, watching would go down by about fifty percent because that seems to be the only news that comes out these days out of General Conference. That is absolutely true, and that's where the buzz comes from. I mean, I've been. Yep. I've been part of several little, you know, friend group pools where we get together and say, where's the next temple going to be? That was always, that was the only gambling that faithful Mormons could do, right? Is to try to predict where the next temple would be. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of websites. I think it's LDS Church Growth at blogspot.com that always does a temple prediction. I can't remember if that's it for sure. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of websites out there that do predictions. And some of them are surprisingly accurate. Maybe they have insider information. Not sure. Or is it number three? Number three, it looks like a good time for the first ever church-wide dusting of the feet. Oh, Ooh. my goodness. Uh-oh. Um, that sounds pretty serious, but, you know, this is a, also a very serious attack. So, not sure. That's true. I'm not sure what merits that. I know we did see it a little bit. If anybody watched Under the Banner of Heaven, we saw that stake president do a little, almost like a tap dance as he left yeah. the room and dusted his feet, um, you know, at the police officer. So I'm not sure. I'm not really so familiar with that. Are you very familiar with that? Um, you know, I've uh, not, not honestly, not really. Uh, all I can say is I believe in the dusting of the feet. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember exactly where, but I believe you actually have to wipe the dust off of your feet physically. And I'm not too sure about some of the uh, older members of the general authorities if they can actually touch their toes. So maybe maybe this isn't the right time for that. Not sure. Probably not the right time. However, they could use their white handkerchiefs. That would let them bend down a little bit farther. That, that, right. uh, that, yes, uh, but something has to be done. That's for sure. Or is it number four? Ooh, outraged. I call on the hackers to tell the world which version of the first vision actually happened. Oh, do you think they know? <laughs> well, if they hack the church, they have all the information. 
they can just they can settle it once and for all. Uh, you know, just let us know which version of the first vision actually happened, and then the, the debate goes away. We can retire the the uh, gospel topics essay. That would save a lot of testimonies, Rebecca. Oh, that's true. However, I wonder if if those different versions of the vision are actually online for them to hack. As I understand mm. it, a lot of them are just hard copy. They were cut out of journals, you know, and and put away for safekeeping and then taped back in. So I'm not sure if the hackers would have had any kind of mm. access to that, but who knows? Who knows? Well, you're probably right. A, a, a person can still hope though, you know? Uh, it would certainly yeah. settle the confusion because yeah, there it would. is a lot of, lot of question around that. There are so many choices yeah. to choose from. You bet. Or is it number five? Number five. We and each of us solemnly covenant and promise that we shall ask God to avenge the lost church data upon this nation. Ooh, that's a heavy one. My goodness. Yeah, I mean, well, this is the biggest attack on the church since uh, Joseph Smith and Hiram. You know, I, I you know, do tell me what is the bigger one than this. And lot, when Hiram and uh, Joseph died, they put that into the temple for until up until about 1929, 1930, the uh, so-called Oath of Vengeance, where he said, hey, we're going to solemnly promise and covenant that uh, we shall ask God to avenge the, the, the blood of the prophets upon this nation. Well, I think we should avenge the lost church data upon this nation. Ooh, so you think it's time to bring that back? Yeah. Pretty heavy yes. oath, but it might yeah. be time. You're right. Yeah, it's, it's, if it's not... If it's not now, when? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Or is it that way? Yeah. Or is it number six? Uh, number six. Confused. The church laid up treasures in heaven that I thought thieves couldn't break through and steal. Where have I heard that before? Yeah. That does sound uh, very familiar. Yeah, it was supposed to, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, lay, uh, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. So, you know, one would, I'm, I'm confused. If, if the church laid up treasures in heaven, I thought that the thieves would not be able to break through and steal that. But I, maybe I need to read my scriptures a little bit more. It may be open to interpretation. We're not oh. exactly sure what it means. There may be some hidden meanings, or it probably, like many of the scriptures, doesn't mean exactly what you thought it meant. We that's, need a topic essay to explain it to you. <laughs> maybe so. Or maybe it's the fact that the church laid up those treasures in Ensign Peak and just buried them in the earth. Ooh. And therefore, that's not, in he that's not treasures in heaven. Hey, Apple stock, uh, Rebecca, I don't think that that's treasures in heaven. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think no. that's treasures in earth, and that's opening up the church. Look what's happening. That's exactly right. And if Apple stock isn't, then I would say GameStop certainly isn't. So, you know, all those issues. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Or is it number seven? Uh, let's see. Not worried one bit. I read that the hackers only targeted church members who weren't paying a full tithing. Oh, uh -oh. my. Is that no. why you received the email? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to answer. I refuse to answer that question. You know, I. Probing. I'm sorry. I sound like a yes. bishop. Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't. Uh, that's right. You're not my bishop and you're not my stake president. Uh, but yeah, I, I did read that on Reddit that, hey, oh, the only people got hacked were not paying a full tithing. Um, I think the chickens are coming home to roost, you know, so. <laughs> that's always the you know i think that's one of the answers to uh, all of life's uh, mysteries is when when life is was life is difficult if you just increase that tithing i think things are going to work out no. so uh, for our listeners out there if you will come over to anchor you can interact with us on that poll and that does take us to our second news article of the week which is russell m nelson headlining groundbreaking for heber valley lds temple so uh, this is another uh, surprise. This was on uh, the Salt Lake Tribune here, David Noyce, uh, October 8, 2022. This is the second time in six weeks that President Nelson has done a surprise appearance at a groundbreaking. The first one was in Ephraim, and now just a couple of days ago, he did it in Heber Valley. 
So uh, what do you think about this uh, groundbreaking here? Uh, that's uh, somewhat near your neck of the woods, right, Rebecca? Well, it is. I was actually there on Friday night to attend a cowboy poetry recitation. Ooh. <laughs> so, yeah, well, from what I understand, I mean, it looked all great. They had their gold shovels and they were all there and it was very official. But but then it kind of came out in the article that there really weren't any permits. Yeah, like I wonder if this Heber even knew that was headed their direction, and and I think that that there's precedence for that. I think they don't always put things in order before they just go ahead and and put that shovel in the earth. So yeah, I mean, it seems like there. the. The church has put the cart before the horse on some of these temples yes. in the past. If you think about the Russia temple, for instance, we don't even have a location for the Russian temple, much less a groundbreak. We don't even know what city it's going to be in. And if you think about the Shanghai, was it the Shanghai China temple where the church announced it? And then the Chinese government said, um, excuse me, a big time out. I don't think so. We're not going to let members go into a secret building where we don't know what they're going to be saying. So, yes, the church has had a history of putting the cart before the horse in this. Now, I mean, when I think about Heber Valley, you know, that's kind Kind of a different place isn't it rebecca oh it's absolutely beautiful pristine and and i have been hearing through social media that some of the residents there are not exactly thrilled that the temple is coming in they're concerned about increased traffic they're in they're concerned about what it's going to how the property values might fluctuate they're concerned about light pollution because it's just this right. beautiful pristine and then you have this building that looks like a birthday cake that's lit up night and day 24 hours a day just right there smack in the middle of it um, a lot of people very wealthy people have cabins and you know getaways up there i think a lot of people don't want that wonderful environment disturbed now i also know or i have heard and read that a lot of general authorities and apostles have second homes or vacation homes in that area. So that may be why. They just need a temple that's a block away. They can just step out of their homes and attend the temple. That's possibly why it's there. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and you're right. I mean, a lot of times when you put in a temple, uh, it increases the property values where it's going. And I think that this actually might be the opposite because those property values in Midway and Heber, those are already through the roof. I don't think mm -hmm. this temple is going to help those property values. Right. No, if anything, it might have a negative impact when right. people look and see this. I mean, a temple is a, a very jarring thing to see, you know, just kind of sticking up out there, especially just in this beautiful, it's just a gorgeous area. So, and I've seen the drawings of the temple. And it's a two-steeple temple. So it's one wow. of those ones where there's one on either end. And and I just wonder, do you think they'll ever build temples that are more, I don't know, conducive to the environment or the landscape? Like, do, why do they have to be 20 stories high? I've always wondered about that. Well, and also, can um, can we put, be putting some solar panels on, on these temples? You know, let's make them environmentally friendly. You know, they claimed that the temples were going to go brown for – we're going to cover this later in our, our uh, news report here. And uh, the temples are going to go brown because Utah was experiencing a drought. But guess what? Most of the temples didn't go brown. Why not put some, on some uh, – why not the, the church could be a leader in uh, making these temples very efficient and uh, even independent of the grid? There's a lot of things that you could do. Yep, no, there are. And I'm also concerned if there's an angel Moroni on the temple. I know they're sort of phasing that out because it's confusing. Was it Moroni? Was it Nephi? We don't know who to put on the temple, but it's so high up in the mountains. I would be worried about lightning and things like that. If literally a lightning rod, if they if they were to put a Moroni up there. So yeah. lots of things I, to think about. 
Yeah, I read especially like the uh, taller temples, like Salt Lake Temple, that that angel Moroni gets struck. Uh, I, I read that it was something like six times a year. I don't know the exact number, but it gets struck a lot, yeah. you know, and they have to go back up there and take care of it. But you're right. The angel Moroni, they are uh, getting the boot in the, uh, the conceptions of the churches is released. Only about 15 uh, percent of new temples going forward will have the angel Moroni on the top of the spire. Not sure if the Hebrew Valley is one of those. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this, you know, just one last thing on this and that the church has a history of, you know, just kind of coming in with the temple, like the new Orem temple that's off of I-15, the city council, they didn't even know that that temple was uh, coming into their city. The church did not coordinate with them. The city council tweeted out that we had no idea that there was a temple coming to our town. It just seems like, you know, to be good neighbors, to be good stewards. I know the church kind of is kind of the overlord of the uh, state of Utah, but it seems like uh, being nice to your neighbors and, and you know, getting permits and, and notifying people, coordinating, it just seems like the uh, Christ-like thing to do. Yeah, I think so too. Well, and there was some backlash. I mean, I I live very close to the Mount Tipinogos Temple, and the new Provo Temple is being built just a you know down the street a little ways. And there was actually arson in that temple on the twenty fourth of July. I drove past it. I actually saw it. I saw wow and everything. So, and they did, I believe, determine that was arson. So, I think there's a little bit of backlash uh, for whatever reason, where people are not necessarily thrilled about a temple going in. Yeah, it took them. It took them about two months to finally tell the uh, general public that that uh, Orem Temple was uh, uh, was arson, and the yep. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms gave, I believe, a five thousand dollar reward yep. to any information leading to an arrest of a person who's associated with it. But I do not believe that they have found the uh, culprit. Hopefully, it's not the same people that hacked the church. You know. Oh my goodness! Uh, the IT. This could be a huge <laughs> conspiracy. We may be onto something here. I'm I'm feeling a good QAnon vibe. You know, um, I'm starting to feel it. Um, that yes. does. <laughs> now this does this does take us to our next article here. Um, and this is from the church's uh, own newsroom here. This is uh, actually well, it was on the church's newsroom, but we I pulled the one off of the Daily Herald there, which is uh, uh, Elder Bednar, LDS apostle, on nine day ministering trip to Eastern Europe, and this was published on the October 10th, um, the 2022, and all of these uh, articles are in our show notes. So he went to visit uh, David Bednar and also a member of the 70 went to go visit uh, five countries in uh, Europe, including Geneva, Switzerland, and a couple of other countries as well. Uh, and he also met with high level United Nations diplomats. And, um, you know, the church made a huge donation to UNICEF a couple of weeks ago. He met with the uh, UNICEF uh, folks. Um, and, uh, you know, he's just, uh, you know, meeting with young, young persons and traveling all over the place. This is a nine day trip. Uh, met mostly with Mormons, but also with the UN and the media. Now, um, did you, were you able to catch this article? Do you have any reaction to it there, Rebecca? Yeah, I looked through it and I feel like these kinds of trips um, are a good way to get really good press. When other things are in the news um, that are not so great, uh, that seem to be happening more and more, these kinds of trips, you can get all kinds of, you know, photo ops and great moments of, you know, the apostle shaking hands with youth and smiling and talking to leaders. It's good news that you have control over, if that makes sense. So you control that narrative and you can spin it and it looks really positive and you can throw up all kinds of articles about each different country and all the different people. So I think it's a, a positive way that they try to control the narrative when some of the other news coming out that they can't control might not be so positive. <laughs> 
That seems that seems pretty good. You know, I, I find it remarkable that the modern day apostles, they generally go to friendly audiences, not outside of the stakes of Zion, as commanded in the Doctrine and Covenants and practiced by the early church apostles. When you read the, uh, I believe it is uh, section 107, not 100 percent sure on that, but the church apostles in the Doctrine and Covenants actually have no authority outside of the stakes of, uh, in, excuse me, no authority inside the stakes of Zion. That was supposed to be left to the high council. So things are oddly backwards now where the apostles generally go to uh, faithful members. If you think about the early apostles uh, going to, for instance, uh, England in uh, 1837, when they opened up Liverpool, three apostles went to England as missionaries, tracting door to door. You never see that anymore. You know, so it's like things are oddly backwards from what is actually in the Doctrine and Covenants, which I find to be uh, rather strange. No, that makes sense. But again, a friendly audience gives you a friendly photo op, right? Ah. You don't want somebody to catch a picture of somebody throwing tomatoes at, uh, you know, Elder Bednar at all. So you want to go where you definitely know your audience and it's going to lead to a positive news story and a positive ah. outcome. Makes sense. You know, I do wonder, though, is Elder Bednar, is he the most well-traveled apostle? And the reason that I speculate that that is, is because, you know, people have a lot of leaked recordings of these state conferences, regional conferences. He's doing a young devotional in Europe. Mm -hmm. And it seems like most a lot of these leaks come from Elder Bednar. And the reason that I think he is uh, the well, most well-traveled apostle is because those uh, uh, the members of the First Presidency and the senior leaders of the church who are, are over 90 years old, they are not up for these uh, big uh, European visits that span over nine days and are really exhausting. They're just not up to it. That's one of the great difficulties of having a gerontocracy. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Elder Bednar seems to be the one that they let out, if that makes sense. You know, there's, there's <laughs> risk, so. although I did read that uh, President Nelson is going to Canada soon. Oh, really? So he's venturing over the border a little bit. Whoa. So this oh, is that's, interesting. that's yeah. interesting. That's interesting that you found that because uh, President Nelson hasn't left the uh, United States since 20. The last time they did it, he left the United States was in 2019 when he went and donate, uh, dedicated the Italy Temple. I think it was the Vincenza Italy Temple. Not sure about the city there, but he doesn't leave the United States hardly at all. In fact, he has only left Utah since it, that Italy since 2019. He's only left the state of Utah one time since 2019 to do an overnight temple dedication of the Washington, D.C. temple. So when I tell you that I don't think that the senior leaders travel very much, I think that um, I, I'm not speculating. I think that that is an actual fact. Yeah, no, I'm sure you're right. And, and they don't go far if they do travel. So in this case, I, I and it, it was just came out yesterday uh, that he, he was going to do a fireside and it was close to where I believe Wendy is from Canada. It was close to where oh. she's from. So, you know, it, it was still... It was still close and safe, I think, for him to be able to travel there. So and be among friends, if that makes Very sense. Very nice. You know, I just I think of Elder Bednar meeting with the UN General Assembly. And I think, you know, what if President Nelson was kind of more like the mold of uh, Jason Trudeau, the uh, speaking of Canada, the Canadian prime minister, somebody who's really a world leader who would go, to, for instance, make a UN General Assembly address. Why meet with UN officials outside? Why not make a UN General Assembly address? Or, or wouldn't it be amazing for the prophet to take leadership on climate change? or gun control, abortion rights, or any of the other pressing issues of our day. Instead of just meeting with state conferences, instead of setting junior, you know, junior apostles to state conferences to become a true world leader, I would expect that the prophet would want to be the leader and not yeah. David Bednar. And, and he is known as a global faith leader. So those things that you just described sound like that would be on the resume of someone who was a global faith leader. So yes, that is a puzzle.
Yeah. Um, uh, now, our next article there uh, is from um, uh, Axios, uh, Salt Lake City uh, Axios. And this is uh, was published by Aaron Alberti on the 12th of October, 2022. And this is Mormon church lawns remain green after water conservation announcement. So this is three months after the church announced that it was focusing on water conservation. And it was supposed to let the lawns and temples go uh, brown. But Axios went and surveyed 120 meeting houses around uh, Salt Lake County in the first couple of days of October. And uh, what did they find, Rebecca? Well, they found that that's not happening at all. The lawns are <laughs> the lawns are lush. The green the lawns are verdant. I believe that the church had really good intentions. They jumped on that environmental bandwagon and said, "Of course, we're going to do that." But then, if you think about it, I find that in the Mormon Church, what's on the outside is very more important than what's on the inside. So I don't think there's any way that they can let the outside of their buildings um, look run down, look brown, not look in peak condition. I mean, you have that, um, you have the scripture in my father's home, there are many mansions and, and it never mentions anything about brown lawns, you know, <laughs> you that in the many mansions, you're going to have this lush lawn. And I actually think I would, I think this is an important article. I believe you've probably heard of prosperity gospel, right? Sure. I believe there's prosperity gardening. I think this is a real <laughs> thing. That, you know, you look at someone's lawn and you see this in Utah all the time, these incredible, pristine lawns. It really speaks to you. You must be very righteous. You have an incredible lawn. Your house looks amazing. You know, what's on the outside is more important than actually what's on the inside. So I don't believe that they can let them go, go brown. It's a matter of optics. Yeah, and you live in Utah, so I mean, I'm only I only I visit Utah about once a month on uh, business, but uh, I'm not there right now. When you're driving around uh, in Utah, I'm sure you're driving past a lot of uh, chapels and churches. What are you seeing anecdotally? Yeah, well, um, I know that my particular chapel by my house, they have gone to more of an environmentally friendly scape with you. Know, oh, cool. And Utah kind of like grasses and things. So some churches that are being built now are being built with this kind of a landscape. But the ones that have grass, had grass before, they are still very green. I And I would notice a brown church lawn because it would stand out, right? Sure. That. And, and that's not the case. So now, not only yeah. are the lawns of the members wonderfully green, uh, I live, like I said, right next to the Mount Timpanogos Temple. I was just there last week taking, you know how missionaries have to take that picture where they wrap the flag around their body and stand in front of the temple. Yes, I was just taking those with my son and the lawns were in I took note of that. And not only that, but their flower arrangements, um, they change them quite often, which I can only imagine takes a lot of water to keep those going too. They rip out the flowers, they put in new flowers. It's all about the gorgeous optics that you have to have all around the church building. So yeah, and very much there. Yeah, I, you know, I got married in the Mount Tippinogos Temple, so that's a special place. So congrats with your son with his picture. Um, I, you know, I believe when it comes to the uh, temples, this article didn't only talk about the meeting houses. When it comes to temples, I'm only aware of one temple that actually did go brown, and it was in Logan. I don't think any of the other temples have gone brown, to my knowledge. So, you know, it just seems like the church made an announcement. Their heart was in the right place. But then when it came to actually following through, it seems like they kind of dropped the ball. Unless you want to take this uh, opinion, um, Rebecca, that, that, hey, they did cut the water but the lord they kept the uh, lawns green you know so and that's a possibility too I, you know, <laughs> it's a miracle, sort of a situation that we're not looking at well and i also question in terms of water conversation con uh, conservation the baptismal font because here in utah that's full every weekend 
every really? day, yeah. constantly. And I just, you know, I'd like to do the math maybe on that, how many gallons of water, what happens to that water because it's filled week after week and, you know, the temple funds. So it takes a lot of water to be a Mormon. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. I honestly, I didn't even think about any of that, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. if the church was serious about water conservation, you could still hold those baptisms like they did, like they did before any temples or anything were around in Nauvoo and in Kirtland, they just baptized you in the river, the Mississippi oh, River. Yeah, or a swimming pool. My mom joined the church in Vienna, Austria, back in the 60s, and she was baptized in a swimming pool. Or, heaven forbid, sprinkling. Can it make a comeback? I don't know. Or or even another idea would just be to say, hey, we're only going to have a regional baptism that's going to take place once a month, and there's going to be like 50 people. They're all going to use the same baptismal water. That's Now, that's true conservation. Bring everybody in so that the fonts are not being uh, individually filled with 50 gallons of water for one eight-year-old kid. Now, that is an interesting observation, huh? Something to think about. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot that the church could do, and they promised to do it. And um, I'm just uh, – I'm a little disappointed that it doesn't appear that they followed through. It appears that their heart was in the right place, but the execution is a little bit off. Now, that brings us to our Mormon News Roundup question of the week, which is an open-ended question. And it, sh- it says uh, under the Mormon News Roundup question of the week, should LDS church lawns continue to stay green? If you head on over to Mormon, our, 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 our uh, website – on excuse me. If you head on over to Anchor, you'll be able to interact with that. By the way, you can also leave us a voicemail through anchor and you can find this podcast on twitter and on youtube please drop us a like drop us a a subscription leave us a positive comment we greatly uh we are great we'd be very grateful to have your feedback now that does take us to our next article here which um was one of my favorite articles for the week and it was after um this article was in the salt lake tribune and it was published on um pardon me it was published by peggy fletcher stack on 10 october 2022 and it says after remaining closeted for years byu professor leaves for a safe space at UVU. And uh, Chad Emmett here, he said he felt burdened by being gay at a school that would never accept you. Now, I think this article is probably right up your alley, uh, Rebecca, because I know that you uh, worked for BYU for a, a period of time as well, right? Yeah, this is true. I went to BYU, graduated from BYU, worked at BYU. I spent almost two decades on campus as either a student as or an employee. So, you know, I was there through through a lot of different uh, situations at BYU. I now, was, does that does that mean you get a discount on your tithing or no? Well, now that's an interesting story because I always <laughs> felt, you know, they always told us as an employee, you are being paid by the sacred tithes. They made sure to say that at like employee meetings and things. And I always thought, well, if it's tithing, why? do I have to pay tithing on it? I mean, it's tithing. (laughs) That was kind of my argument. That did not go over very well when at one point when I was early married, I told my bishop, I'm sorry, I'm not a full tithe payer um, because I work at BYU and don't make very much, but, you know, not really thinking about what that would mean because the bishop then turned around and said, well, I'm going to have to contact your boss at BYU and you might actually lose your job. So um, I understand what this BYU professor, I understand his feelings that you really, every part of your life is tied into your job and anything that you do that isn't you know, in line with what you're supposed to be doing as a Mormon, your job can be at risk. It's a lot of pressure. And I'm sure that he felt um, that increased pressure and also just having to hide the whole time, which yeah, right. He says safe space in the article, right? Finally able to breathe free at UVU. So it's a real thing. One would hope that uh, the uh, church sponsored, uh, the institution, uh, a church sponsored institution would be the safest faith on earth for someone, especially an active believing member. But now Chad Emmett, he um, had to turn in his 
his retirement papers earlier than he wanted. And he's now an adjunct faculty member at Utah Valley University across the way with far fewer benefits. And he's even going to have to be working at Deer Valley as a lift operator to make ends meet. So this was a huge sacrifice for him and something that obviously he did not take lightly. Yeah, but he sounds in the article, he sounds relieved and happy as he's able to be himself and he's able to teach his students in the way that he wants and and interact with his students um, without hiding anything. So the article, to me, I, I thought he gave up a lot, but he gained a lot in the long run, I think. Sure. Now, I, I think about uh, John Larson, who did the pod, the very popular uh, podcast, Mormon Expressions, for years. Um, I, I, he is very critical of BYU professors like Chad Emmett, who um, stay until they uh, achieve a retirement age. And he said that John Larson's he, he always rants about this, that uh, if all these BYU professors like uh, uh, Professor Emmett here, if they all got together and resigned in mass, then that would force the church to change. Um, how do you feel about that, those type of sentiments uh, there, Rebecca? You know, I don't know. It does take a big event or extremely negative um, media to make a change in the church, I think. Um, but BYU has become something. I, I love watching BYU and what's happening to it. It's just so interesting. People are standing up. People are speaking back. Uh, whether or not that can make a difference, I don't know. Because when you go to BYU, hopefully you understand you're putting yourself in the system, as I like to call it. And, you know, unless you really want to be a rebel, there's not a lot of things that you can do to fight back. I mean, I was at BYU when the September 6th, if you're familiar with that, happened. Sure. I was working at BYU then. And, you know, those were people who were trying to speak their truth and they were trying to talk about things that the church didn't necessarily want to come to light and they were, you know, excommunicated and dismissed right there. So, so you're working for a powerful institution. If you work at BYU, as I found out by just saying, I'm not a full tithe payer this year and my job is in jeopardy. I had to quickly come up with money for that tithing, or I could have lost my job. It's, it's a very interesting situation to be in. Yeah, I think that people like John Larson, who have never worked at, at BYU like you or I have, um, really are very clueless about the pressures of uh, um, providing for your family. You have a job. You don't want to move. There's only limited opportunities, as we've seen. Mr. Uh, Mr. Emmett here is now working as an adjunct. There's only so many institutions that are close enough to BYU. It's not like you're living in New York City here. And the idea that all of these BYU professors are cowards, I reject that notion, and uh, I don't think that that is a wise approach. I applaud Mr. Emmett for making his case known to uh, the Salt Lake Tribune, and if other people also uh, similarly follow his path, then maybe that will lead to uh, more institutional change. Yep, I would hope so. I, I say good for him. <laughs> now, um, you brought up a point about clergy confidentiality. When it comes to working at BYU, you know, BYU just recently in the last two months, if you, for new hires there, you have to sign away your clergy confidentiality. There used to be a kind of a fake clergy confidentiality by, if you go to your bishop, that you supposedly were confidential, but in reality, it did not work that way. Now, new hires at BYU, they have to sign away all, all a pretense of clergy confidentiality. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's very disturbing. Um, if you want to work there, they are going to check with your bishop to make sure you are the right kind of person, which yep. I think uh, President Holland had outlined what the right kind of person to work at BYU is. They keep reiterating that. And so they want to. They don't want to make the mistake of hiring somebody that's going to be a problem down the road. And I even had the thought of, does that extend to spouse? Uh, what if your spouse went in and you're a BYU 
potential hire and says, oh, my, my husband is drinking or something. So is that confidential? It just opens up a whole can of worms that they can find out pretty much anything about you in your yep. life to make sure that you're a fit for BYU. And yeah. And in fact, if you go back, yeah, if you, in fact, if you go back to the 60s with Ernest Wilkinson, who was the president of uh, BYU in the, I think, late 50s to early 60s, he even uh, basically subpoenaed or he asked uh, uh, President McKay uh, for the tithing records of all of the BYU faculty and employees. At the time, I think there was around 1,100 of them. This was from a, a dialogue article, as I recall. So he got all of the tithing records of all the faculty and then called all of the ones who were in, who were not full tithe payers, into his office and said, hey, pal, what's the deal? You better get straight or we're going to fire you. So, I mean, there is a lot of pressure of working at BYU, not just in tithing, but in LGBTQ issues and in a wide variety of other issues. It, um, it is a really challenging place to work. Yep. And be a student, I think. And be a student. Which yeah. Yeah, I mean, BYU is the number two school in the nation for not being LGBTQ friendly. In other words, being anti-LGBTQ friendly. And that's not just for students. That's for employees and faculty as well. Yep, that's absolutely true. And I was at BYU in the mid 80s where it was overtly not LGBTQ friendly. In fact, I I had a roommate, we had a, a friend who was who was gay, and he asked my roommate if she would pretend to be his girlfriend. Oh, so no. He could just, you know, because they, they were, I don't want to use the word hunting, but that's kind of what it was. They were actively had people on lists and they were watching them to see, you know, how they were acting. So he basically asked her to be, I, I think the word is your beard, which beard oh, no. not allowed at BYU. Yeah. And so my roommate agreed and she pretended to be his girlfriend. They would go out and standards actually had her come in and to talk to her to make sure that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. And not only that, and this is anecdotal, this is my experience, standards called me in to ask about their relationship. Do what? I see them sitting on the couch together? Do I see them holding hands? Which was ironic because typically when they ask those questions, they want the answer, no, no, they're having no contact. Oh. They wanted me to tell them that there was some romantic contact. Oh, but just not too much. Yeah, and again, you know, we loved our friend. And so of course we said what, what they wanted to hear. But, you know, looking back at that, that was just completely wrong. The 80s, there's a lot to answer for there at BYU um, in terms of that in the 80s. It was just not a good environment and people did what they had to do to survive. So anecdotally, that was my experience. <laughs> yeah, uh, Brother Emmett in the article, he said, uh, you know, he graduated from BYU as well with a degree. And he, he said, I want to quote him. He said, I just thought, quote, I'm not going to be gay. I'm just going to get married and have a family and it will all go away, end mm -hmm. quote. And unfortunately, you know, our modern day, the modern day reality is, is that's just not the way that it works. Yeah, not at yeah. all. No. And and so much anecdotal evidence. I had a roommate that did marry someone and that's exactly what happened. You know, they tried, they had a family, five children. And, you know, a few years later, he said, I can't do this anymore. I'm sorry, I'm living a lie. So unfortunately, people put in these situations and just devastating to family and, and, and kids. And it's really sad. Yeah. And his final straw here, I thought this was very interesting, was uh, you referenced uh, Elder Holland earlier about the uh, he seems to be the point man on these BYU LGBTQ yes. issues since he was the former president of BYU Idaho. Um, he said in August of 2021 that he decried that some faculty members public ad advocacy for same sex marriage was the final straw for him. So the so-called musket talk was the last straw for Chad Emmett, and that made him put in his uh, retirement papers. Wow. Yep. Everyone has their breaking point. And that was a pretty pivotal talk, I think, for a lot of people.
Yeah, it sure was. Um, so uh, we wish him, uh, I think I can um, speak on behalf of my co-host here, Rebecca, that we wish him the very best in his new endeavors at UVU and also wherever else life takes him. Now, our next article here is a study ranks high. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, let, let me, uh, uh, I got to pull this back up. Okay. This is from BYU's Daily Universe. This was on October 3rd, 2022. And it says, study ranks Utah number one for mental illness in the United States. So BYU, it's encouraging students to visit the free mental health services after Utah uh, ranked first in high levels of mental illness, according to a study. And the, uh, the study said that in Utah, almost 30% of adults have suffered from mental illness and have received a diagnosis uh, within the last year. This is just absolutely tremendous. You know, I'm from Utah. You know, when I retire someday, you know, I'll probably go, maybe go back to Utah. This is my home state. How is it that it's just number one for mental illness? That is not, that is, uh, that's not what I was hoping. Well, it's certainly not the plan of happiness. That is true. It is, somebody made the joke, plan of happiness. It's the plan of crappiness. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I haven't heard that one. Uh, oh, truth. no. But I think this speaks to exactly what we just <laughs> talked about in the last article. Um, people are hiding. People can't be themselves. There's incredibly high demand, incredibly high control. And this is, I looked at this survey because I wanted to see what the stats actually were. And um, interestingly, do you have any guesses as to what the, the least mental illness uh, is which state? I would I, I would just guess maybe uh, Alaska, Hawaii. I don't know. I'm just guessing yeah, that's here. That's what I thought too. The actual, the very lowest was New Jersey. Wow. Stereotypically, they're like, I don't care. You know, who gives a wow. So they started out with, you know, 16% of people reporting needing mental health counseling. And then it just kind of jumped up through the states in small increments, just, you know, a small decimal point as they went up. So then you get to like the top five and you start getting into Washington state and Ohio, Oregon, West Virginia. But what was interesting to me is that Utah by far, by two, over two points is the highest in mental illness. Like the West Virginia is the next one. It's 24.62%. Utah wow. jumps 26.86. It's wow. not just barely on the scale. It is by far out ahead in mental illness. And that just made me sad. It made yeah. me very sad to see that. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's very sad to hear. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of pressure on church members. I mean, yeah. you don't have to be uh, teaching at BYU to receive a level of pressure that says, hey, you have the, we have high standards. So there's things that you have to be doing with your time, whether it's in the week, whether it's on the weekend. And uh, some people feel a great deal of uh, guilt or pressure with not living up to the uh, stereotypical happy Mormon mold. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And also you're constantly, like I said earlier, surrounded by Mormons. You are constantly seeing what everyone else is doing all the time. So you have to keep up with the Joneses. You have to keep up appearances. And there's that sense that if things are going wrong for me, I'm not righteous. What is going wrong? What's happening? Why did my husband lose his job and my neighbor didn't? It just puts this incredible stress and this perfect storm in your brain that causes a lot of pressure and mental issues. And then, of course, what are you told to do? Go to your bishop for help is your right. bishop qualified what do you think <laughs> well i mean the, the 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 issue here with bishops is that they they only receive extremely minimal training when it comes to uh you know things like uh, mental health counseling like most you know other uh, religions uh, they you know they have uh, doctors in divinity or they have a masters in counseling and they, you know they have a lot of experience with dealing with people in difficult situations so, you know they do internships for health counseling none of that happens with your bishop so if you go to your bishop and hope to get the same type of a uh, counseling 
counseling that someone else who visits their uh, Protestant minister or someone else who visits a mental health professional gets, you're not going to be receiving that level of care, even though it may seem like you are. Right. No, that's exactly true, because they're telling you the things that you're used to hearing. Read your scriptures, say your prayers. It will get better. It will go away. And you really do need professional help. You really do. And the problem also is that your bishop, he can't write you a prescription. If you're having serious mental uh, challenges that require a, a prescription, he's not able to do that. And that can be a problem. No, you know, uh, let me ask you, Rebecca, I'm not living in Utah currently. I haven't lived there in almost a decade. But uh, do you think that there still is a stigma against people seeking and obtaining mental health services in, in either in Utah or from the church? Um, I don't think it's as bad as it was. I do think that oftentimes people absolutely seek medication um, as opposed to therapy. Sometimes it's a combination. But I feel like one of the main, I, the main thing that I see is that your happiness is often contingent on what other people are doing, you know, like, oh, your son didn't go on a mission. Well, then, you know, you need to do something about that. Like you're supposed to somehow, somehow be in charge of what other people are doing so that then that causes your happiness or unhappiness. And that's an impossible situation. There's right. no way that you can be responsible for what other people are doing, yet you're told that you are. And that just creates a situation, I think, where mentally it's very taxing on people. So I definitely yeah. see it. I know Utah is, I think, number one in prescription, in antidepressants. I think I've read and heard that before. So I, I personally have a friend. She she does not take any kind of antidepressants any other day of the week except for on Sunday. She's a stake release society president. And she goes, oh, I just pop a Xanax just to get through the day. Wow. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> she knows that Sunday's going to be rough with the pressure and the things that she has to do and put up with. So she just takes a Xanax every morning on Sunday. Sunday morning. So yeah, anecdotally, there's a lot of that. And I think some of the studies coming out are showing it's not just anecdotal. Now, do you think that Relief Society president would be uh, willing to share some of that Xanax with a C-list podcaster or is that just for her? You know, who knows? Who knows? She's probably <laughs> stashing her purse. And uh, as long okay. as she's that stake Relief Society president, she needs it by God. Okay. I, she probably needs it. She probably needs it more than I do. You know, when I think when I think about the uh, – this goes back to our last article there with uh, Chad Emmett here. Um, the gay, gay and trans members of the church mm -hmm. in particular really struggle with the mental health issues. And as we've seen from survey after survey, the percentage of uh, millennial members of the church who are identifying as non-cisgender, as either, you know, trans, bisexual gay or whatever it is really rising so because the percentage of, of, of people who are gay and trans um you know they have more mental health issues just without the church if you add the church into the mixture it can become very combustible and that's when you're going to see even higher levels of mental illness yeah no it is and i feel that sometimes kids don't get the help even from their parents it's basically just go back to church and pray it away <clears throat> and i have that situation with when my son was 15 um he being in church was just impossible for him. He would have panic attacks. It was just really rough. And I actually, this is one of my first little baby steps away from the church is that I finally had to look at him. My knee jerk reaction was to say, well, go back, go to your class, you know, just try, try, talk to your bishop. But I saw it was just destroying him mentally. And so my first little baby step away from the church was to say, you know what? I choose my son's mental health over the church. And I told him, you don't have to go anymore. You do not have to put yourself in that situation anymore. And let's work on your mental health outside of that, because the church for you personally is very detrimental. So, but not all parents make that decision, right? They want their kids to go and they want them to try because they feel that's their job. And so, yeah, it's just, it's rough. It's really, really heartbreaking in lots of cases. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm also the uh, host of the Mormon Movie Reviews on uh, YouTube, and I just reviewed this last week, uh, Saturday's Warrior. And if you remember that 1989 classic, uh, Jimmy, he uh, leaves the Flinders family to hang out with Mac and uh, a bunch of uh, deviants. And when he does, his parents are in anguish and they sing, didn't we love him? Meaning that they are taking it as their fault that Jimmy is making a quote unquote bad decision. And I think that that sentiment, even though it's only in a movie, I think that that is a, a sentiment that a lot of people can really relate to. Yeah, no, that's what I was trying to say, that that what you, you can't control what someone else is doing, yet you're told that you failed if they don't do what they were supposed to do. It's a very rough situation to be in mentally for parents. Absolutely. And it unfortunately, it can be exacerbated by this next article that we if you add all everything that we've talked about, our next article here can lead to even more uh, mental health challenges. And this was um, Michael Resendez. He's back in the news again. He is uh, a fearless warrior uh, when it comes to advocating for uh, ch- children who have been sexually abused. And from the uh, Associated Press on October 12, 2022, he uh, wrote an article entitled Lawsuit, Utah Firm and Lawmaker Helped Mormons Hide Abuse. Now, this is not the first time that we've heard from Mr. Resendez, is it, Rebecca? No, no, not at all. He is coming out with an article about every week or a week and a half, it seems like. And a lot of people refer to it as a situation where they really poked the bear, meaning that he did some initial articles that the church fired back and said, shoddy reporting, Mr. Rosales right. and AP. And I think once you do that, once you challenge, uh, challenge somebody's credibility, I don't think he's going to let this go. There's just a lot in it. And he's digging and digging. And a lot of people are supporting his research um, in all kinds of ways. So yeah, I think we're going to see more and more about this case. It's just bringing to light a lot of things that most people don't understand or know about how the church works when it comes to reporting abuse or more importantly, stopping abuse. That doesn't really seem to be a priority. Yeah, and in particular, so what this new was, so what is news from this new article? Well, it's Adam's surviving children because he's uh, he committed suicide in jail. They are seeking permission. These are the abused children who are abused by Mr. Adams. They are seeking permission to add additional co-conspirators to their already uh, progressing lawsuit. So they were already suing the church, but they are now going to try to put uh, uh, Mrs. Adams, Liza Adams, and LDS Family Services onto this lawsuit and potentially add Curtin McConkie to the lawsuit and Mr. Nelson, who is the lawyer who gave the advice to the bishops, uh, bishop in particular, uh, I think, uh, I can't remember which bishop it was, to not report it. So this lawsuit is now gaining steam and is adding scope with additional potential, uh, there's additional parties who are potentially going to be involved with this. Yep, absolutely. Because all of these parties had a hand in letting this abuse continue, you know, by turning a blind eye uh, for years. And I think one of the more interesting people that there are entities that they're adding is LDS Family Services, because the church had made a statement that said, because the criticism was when a bishop calls the helpline, it's a lawyer that answers. And they said, no, no, it's it's someone from LDS Family Services. It's a therapist. It's, you know, maybe alluded to maybe a senior missionary, a grandparent, you know, some person that's going to have a licensed a- social worker. So a like a licensed social worker, social worker. Yeah. Somebody like that. So, well, if that's true and a bishop calls and tells a licensed social worker that there's been abuse, they absolutely must report that. But that is not what ha- was happening. These licensed social workers were then turning the call over to, to lawyers. So that's a big problem.
Right. Yeah. So problem if it was answered by licensed social workers, then they have an obligation to do something about it. You know, if it's handled by lawyers, then you don't. But the problem with this uh, case is that the church did not say that it was immediately handled by lawyers. They said that the calls initially went into the church's risk management department and were handled by, I don't know, just basically routine workers, like you said. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a big problem. The church, uh, in according to the response to this article, it says the church lawyers say that in the Adams case, all calls to the helpline that were made by Herod and Mousy, those were the two bishops who were involved with the Adams case. They were actually taken by Curtin McConkey lawyers directly. And this is a quote. All of those all of those were with attorneys or paraprofessionals. None of them in this case were with anyone other than the attorney or attorney staff. So they're saying that in this particular case, that it was handled only by lawyers. And people are um, a, a little bit uh, questioning that. Yeah, that, that seems, I'm a little skeptical of that. And unfortunately, we can't really know because what happens to those calls or records of those calls at the end of each day? Do we know what happens to them? Yes, I do. Angel Moroni comes and takes them back. I was going to say that's exactly it. <laughs> so we have no records. So, well, and in the cases where Angel Moroni can't make time to do that, all those calls are shredded. Ah. Is there is absolutely no record daily of the calls. They are destroyed at the end of the day. And I keep trying to wrap my brain around that. Why? Why would that be in the interest <laughs> of somebody to do that? Why would you not keep a record unless there was something that you maybe were hiding? I don't know. I, it just doesn't make sense to me at all. It, it they, they destroy the records because they are in the risk management business and wow. keeping records like that does not help with risk management. Keeping records like that helps victims um, be able to uh, receive help and services they, that they need. But the purpose of the helpline was never to help victims. It was to prevent, uh, the, it was, that's the reason it was in the risk management department to begin with. No, that's exactly it. Risk management, I think, is really at the top tier of the church. Sure. <laughs> if you look at it, if you if you read fine print on almost anything in the church, you will see their name there. They are just kind of waiting in the wings, making sure everything is okay. It's very interesting. You know, and uh, honestly, Rebecca, I think the one reason it is is because we alluded to this earlier. With the corporation soul, the church is worth a tremendous amount. They're worth around a quarter of a trillion dollars, $250 billion. When you have that in one corporation, if the church takes a huge lawsuit, we saw what just happened with Alex Jones and then Sandy Hook. They gave him a punitive damage of a billion dollars. In other words, they completely wrecked him for his horrible uh, comments. If the church takes a huge lawsuit or a bunch of class action lawsuits, has to open their books, a jury sees how much the church is worth and wants to assign punitive damages, it could be into the you know, tens of billions of dollars. So risk management, that's a primary concern for the church. No, that's true. And that's a really good point because the church has centralized powers. Other churches don't have that. For example, right. when, uh, Michael Resendez, you know, he was the reporter known from the, the Spotlight movie where they took on the Catholic church. You would sue your individual diocese. Right. There is not a centralized power. This, they are in a, the Mormons are in a very vulnerable situation, especially with the, you know, dragon's horde that they're sitting on. They are very vulnerable. Right. And they'll go to great lengths to protect it. Right. You did with the Boston when he broke that back in. I think it was 1993. Not sure about that date. But yeah, you could ruin a complete diocese. But yeah. there's there's I don't know if there's there's a couple hundred dioceses across the earth. And, you know, if each one of them has a, you know, a couple 10 billion of dollars, you're not going to bring down the whole enchilada. But that is theoretically I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV. That is theoretically possible with uh, with the church because it is a corporation soul and they don't have the assets mixed into a bunch of different things. So oh, no. in I don't fact, know. They're a closely held corporation, which means that 
over 50% of their assets are held by under five people. So, I mean, it is centralized, as centralized as it can get. Now, do you look at, uh, do you think that uh, Resendez here, he's an anti-Mormon crusader or um, seems sure seems like he has an axe to grind? You know, I, I really feel like he just uh, wants to see justice and he wants to end abuse. And I feel like he might have written some of the initial articles and thought, oh, well, maybe this church will, you know, change their tune or they'll start doing things differently. But instead, they tried to go after his character. Where have we seen that before? <laughs> the character of the person raising the alarm. And I feel like now he is a crusader. I feel like he won't let this go now because, again, poke the bear. And I think they have poked the wrong bear. Absolutely. So I think you'll be doing articles from Resendez and on this topic uh, for months, if not years to come. Yeah. So what's interesting, a couple last notes on this, because this is a big article here. Uh, Mr. Nelson, who is the lawyer who was uh, uh, who took the calls for Curtin McConkie and advised the bishops, he said in the article that, quote, it seems to me like the help, uh, the help desk, I'm sorry, the helpline, it did operate as intended, end quote. So in other words, this was the result that the church wanted all along. And a lot of people are saying, well, this is not the result that uh, is best for children or the families who are involved. That's absolutely true. Did you read uh, the paragraph about the word immediately? Yes. Oh, oh my man. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. I just I wish I could pull that up. That's a great paragraph where they say, well, immediately could mean and I think any good lawyer would read it this way. Immediately means immediately after you figure out that you do need to report it which could take quite a while. <laughs> yeah, thought, uh, that's... Oh my goodness, weasel word after weasel word and yeah. the victims are continuing to be abused. So I don't know where there's justice in that. Horrible. And Nelson, he has, since this entire scandal broke, that he works for Curtin McConkie and advised bishops do not report child sex abuse, he has since retired from the Utah legislature. And this article also brings up another point that there's another lawyer who is also consulted in this, Peter Schofield. So we're probably going to see more and more. Uh, I don't think Mr. Resendez is done, and he's going to try to shine, uh, shine a light into the darkness. And I, I, for one, am grateful for his reporting and that he's willing to um, take on the church because um, this is difficult reporting and getting pushback and being called that you're not doing your job. That's that's uh, probably not a very pleasant thought for him. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure it's not. And, he, you know, I think he didn't necessarily know what the Mormon church was when he took this on. And I think he's, I think the Pandora's box has been opened. And I think he's probably stunned and shocked every day as he digs deeper and finds out what's there. And I know there are a lot of people supporting his research. Um, people are, you know, sending in information and pointing them in the right direction. So it'll be very interesting to watch and to see what the end result is. Yeah, we've discussed this quite a bit because there's more and more of this that comes forward. It took months for President Nelson to come up with a statement on this. He did not. Mm -hmm. took uh, about two months before he addressed it in a general conference. That is too little, too late. And, uh, you know, he did take in, after this initially broke, President Nelson took an 11-day break. I believe it was an 11-day break on his social media. And his first tweet out after this uh, uh, initially broke was, um, you know, are you getting ready for general conference? Let me know what uh, things can you can do to build your testimony, which struck a lot of people as uh, tone deaf. Yeah, very tone deaf. Again, when these kinds of articles come out, you'll also notice a influx of, you know, pleasant, happy articles. Look, we're traveling. Look, we're building temples. Look, we're donating. Notice the huge donation right around the time when all these articles are coming out. It's a smokescreen and it does 
work for a lot of faithful members, but other people that are watching were like, okay, nope, let, let's see what's happening here. So this is a, watching. yeah, they are. This is a giant confusing mess. And I, I call on the church to have a senior ordained church leader, not a spokesperson needs to hold a press conference, take direct questions mm -hmm. that can help clear up this incredible mess. Uh, President Nelson's address uh, saying that abuse will not be tolerated in general conference. That's not going to get it done. There more needs to be done in a question and answer format. Yep, I think that's true. But have you ever known them to do that? I just don't think <laughs> that they will. Well, actually, yes. They <laughs> actually, Rebecca, yes, they did. You remember the policy of exclusion in 2015 when that was rolled out? It was a huge, horrible mess. And I believe that it was D. Todd Christofferson who was rolled out to take the questions. Oh, so it had now I believe that he took the questions from the church's uh, own um, so-called journalists. I don't think it was open to anyone, but that is better than nothing. So, yes, the church has done this in the past. And they can do it again. Remember, David Bednar was at the National Press Club briefing back in May, and he took direct questions from um, so-called hostile journalists. So yes. it has been done and it needs to be done again. I guess that's true. If they want to come up with some scripted reporters and some scripted questions, at least that's better than nothing. You're right. Yeah, it is. Now, that brings us, by the way, this is all ties into our last article here, which is Jana Reese, Latter-day Saint leaders, and the fear of apologizing. This goes directly into what we've been discussing. This was dropped on October 14, 2022, by Religion News Service, and it says, the inability for the LDS Church to apologize is damning to us spiritually as a church in that it impedes our progress. There's so much freedom in being able to see to say i messed up and i'm sorry and um you know did you catch this uh did you catch the story what did you think about the uh story here uh rebecca yeah i thought that was an interesting topic for her to cover and it made me think about the steps of repentance um as we learn them in mormon primary and through our lives and i looked through them and there really is no step that says apologize it says recognize it says feel sorrow it says make restitution and maybe apologizing is implied but it never flat out says apologize to anyone that's been wrong or if you got something wrong it does not say that and I mean, I think we all know that apologizing, you know, it makes you lose your power. I think it's part of that. What do, why do you think there's a lack of apologizing? I, I don't know if you lose your power when you apologize. If I think about Pope Francis, for instance, he's apologized quite a bit about child sex abuse scandals. And also right. when the Canadian, um, you know, the boarding school scandal in Canada with the indigenous yeah. persons who were removed to uh, mostly a lot of Catholic schools and they ended up having mass graves. He went and apologized for that um, horrible debacle, the, uh, the, that tragedy. And I don't think that um, he lost estimation either in my in my side or in other people's side. I think that people look at an apology as, um, hey, we did something wrong. We're going to do better. And um, you can hold us accountable. I don't think people lost uh, confidence in Pope Francis. Yeah, no. And I think what I was trying to say is I think the church feels they might lose their power if they do that. Also apologizing, um, you know, I mean, Jesus tells them what to do. So what are you saying exactly? And you're also apologizing for things that past prophets have said. It's just kind of a, it can be a hot mess once you start going in that role of apologizing when you have such a theocratic organization, you know, led from the top down. There's no bottom up whatsoever. So no, I completely agree when you see apologizing institutionalized in other areas it does. It you know, it helps everybody move forward, and it makes you look 
uh, in a positive light. But I think the church just has a big, exactly what she said in the article, a fear of apologizing for all of those reasons. Yeah, um, President Oaks, he said that uh, in, a, in a church that is led by modern day revelation, there's basically, he sees no difference between, practical difference between um, doctrine and policy. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, and you had a bad policy, for instance, of having Curtin McConkie lawyers tell people that if they were in a state that did not require to report ch- a child sex abuse, that go ahead and not report it. If that's a bad policy, then, you know, that's linked to, that could be potentially linked to revelation as well. And then right. we're calling the truth, uh, we're calling the church's truth claims into question. And that is not something that senior leaders are um, want to do. No, that's exactly right. They operate by revelation. So there should be no need to apologize. Everything they're doing has, you know, the box has been checked by God and Jesus himself. So <laughs> they're doing exactly <laughs> what they're supposed to do. So. Yeah, yeah, if you... I think it would go a long way. I mean, I think, I, well, can you even imagine someone actually standing up and saying, I'm, I'm very sorry. And there are so many things to apologize for. <laughs> There's such a list, you know. They yeah. give money sometimes instead of apologizing. They'll yes. often have a photo op where they're giving money to a group that has been marginalized or wronged. And, you know, it's kind of implied that they're apologizing maybe, uh, but there isn't a real apology. Yeah, you're talking about the National Association Uh of the Advancement of Colored Persons, right? Yeah, Yeah. do you remember, it was years ago, but there was actually a fake apology to that group from the church that was circulating. Somebody had written it and a lot of people picked up on it and thought, oh my goodness, is this really happening? Yeah, it wasn't to the NAACP in particular. It was just a general apology. It was from Jonathan Streeter, and he put out the uh, he made a fake uh, church new uh, news release. And yeah. you know, a lot of people. <laughs> it was funny. You look, you look on. Oh, it's funny but sad. You look on people on Twitter, and they are saying, you know, I, I this is the answer to my prayers. It's yeah. about time the church. You know, uh, this is what we've been waiting for, and yeah. this is a glorious day from the Lord. And then it turned out to be uh, fake. Yeah, no, it was, it was extremely sad, but it definitely brought to light that this kind of thing, it doesn't happen and people are waiting for it to happen. Like you said, this is an answer to my prayer. This is a beautiful day. Yep. I saw those posts too. So, yeah, I mean, just real quick from the article, we had Elder Holland who um, made a faith promoting story uh, that he shared for missionary training uh, center leaders um, back in, um, I think it was, I think it was about five years ago, maybe 2017. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that some of the elements of that story were uh, incorrect. And he just had the church issue an apology through the church church newsroom and nobody thought any of the wiser nobody is is holding this over his head i know some people do but i personally don't you had a story turned out some of the elements were wrong you retracted it you issue an apology hey let's move on i don't see a there's no problem what's the what's the issue no, the problem, as we learned, for example, from Watergate, is uh, once you cover it up, you know, and don't apologize, then it gets worse and worse. So look at Paul H. Dunn, right? <laughs> yeah. Or they just make you emeritus, right? If there's a problem there. So. Yes, um, they, the church with Paul H. Dunn, they did also issue through, I believe it was through the Deseret News, they mm-hmm. issued a statement that said that his some of his stories yes. were not factual, but nobody apologized. And no. that seems to be the uh, that seems to be the modus operandi. And in particular, I just want to cover one last thing, and that was Elder Bednar. The reason this article also comes up as Elder Bednar in the last uh, general conference. It appears with uh, pretty pretty convincing evidence here um, that he uh, took some of his talk from verbatim from a 2005 conference mm-hmm. talk, which was written by an individual named uh, Mr. Reed, um, yeah. who's kind of an obscure individual, and that he didn't cite him properly either in general conference or he did not use the proper footnotes and citations and quotation marks when it was initially released onto the church's website. And instead of apologizing, they just uh, went back in and inputted those uh, periods and uh, quotations back in. This seems like a good time for an apology in my mind. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And conference talks are important. That is the meat, right, that everybody talks about for the next year. And you're assuming that it's inspired words, that it's from your church leader. Um, you're not really told that it might be coming from another source. So yeah, that was a big deal. I, I don't quite understand how that happened. It might have been an innocent mistake, but if it was by one of his speechwriters, then for heaven's sakes, you know, let everybody know what happened. Don't try to cover it up. You, you just look bad when you do that. And that's what a lot of people are saying is that, you know, maybe, you know, Elder Bednar, maybe he didn't even write this talk to begin with because, I mean, he's a college church. Uh, he's a college a president of a college. Yeah. He knows better than that. I'm willing to yeah. give Elder Ballard a pass as the used car salesman if he didn't have the proper site, if he didn't cite his uh, sources using MLA. I'm definitely willing to give him a pass. I am not willing to give a college president a pass who many students who when he was a president of BYU-Idaho, they were kicked out for plagiarism. So um, yeah. you're not allowed then to... Uh, you know, have a double standard here. You should yeah. be apologizing. Yep, not at all. In his capacity as the president, he absolutely understands the ramifications of plagiarism. But I do believe that people do assist in writing the talk. So I can see how that could have happened. Mm -hmm. But to kind of slip in and add the quotes later and add the footnotes, that's that's very sneaky. <laughs> yes, especially after only after you're called out because people took the yes. screenshots of when it was originally dropped. And then it took them four days to get all of the proper citations in there. And besides, why is Elder Bednar quoting from this obscure kind of a secular person? Yes. Um, you know, we expect inspired counsel to be coming from the right. Lord, not this offshoot. Uh, it would be kind of like Elder Bednar quoting from like Denver Snuffer. Why are you quoting from him for most of for a lot of your talk? It just the whole thing doesn't make any sense. It's well, just... because it's more interesting. It's like my husband um, used to teach gospel doctrine back in the day, and he loved Joel Olstein, and so he would quote him quite often. And he actually would call him Elder Olstein. <laughs> said nobody ever called him on it and he slipped in so many inspiring quotes from elder osteen <laughs> so, wow that is so it's funny content that's why that's right <laughs> wow oh that is too funny so <laughs> i never 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 seen that one so yeah. um okay i think we've covered all of i think we've covered it all here rebecca did we leave anything yeah. off you know, there'd always be more to talk about, I'm sure. Like I say, I, I love um, the court intrigue of Mormonism. Um, ever since Game of Thrones ended, I, I wanted something else to watch. <laughs> it really is the court intrigue of Mormonism. So, But I think we've done a pretty good job, pretty good job of covering what came out in just this week. It's incredible, week to week. Um, what you see next so it no, sure is so thank thanks so much for joining us i want to uh, give a couple of notes for uh next uh our next week next week we're going to have pd on from priesthood dispatches as our co-host next week and rfm still says that he's going to come on sometime soon perhaps yeah, in november cool. or december and uh you can uh, our official sponsor is signature books we want to thank them so much our music is provided by weird alma and i'll give a shout out to weird alma for this episode's music thanks so much uh rebecca for ruminating with me on the great and spacious beehive and remember Remember, remember, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a being with no moral constraints. My number one goal is to hurt the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.